Good morning and welcome everybody listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning. You're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Howdy, howdy, it's Liam. It is indeed. It is Liam this morning. Liam, what are you thankful for on this... Uh, let me see, windy, not terribly cold, but very overcast Monday morning. Uh, well, this, I'm actually, I'm, th- I'm thankful for a bunch of things this morning, but I am going to focus in on the fact that it's not freezing cold. Yeah, it is kind of, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because it looked like the middle of winter out there. Yeah. But it's not really that I woke cold. up and when I got to the car, I didn't need to put the, the demystifier on. No. For the first time in, in No windscreen wipers, no demister, no. nothing. Just It was just jump in and drive. Just drive away. And it's the, the last couple of mornings previous to this one here in our local uh, Hunter, Newcastle area, it's just been winter. It has. It's just been full-blown winter. And this morning it looks like winter, but it's not. It doesn't feel like it. No, I think, that, I think the wind is blowing from Queensland. Yeah. So because because usually this type of weather it it does get to me. Does this mean I'm climatizing? No. It okay. Takes you three years. Okay. Good. What are you thankful for this morning? <laughs> I am thankful for. Well, I'm thankful for a massive pile of firewood that I have in my backyard. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do. I've got a pile of firewood there, like the size of Sydney Harbour Bridge, but I'm um, not sure what I'm going to do because I don't have a fireplace yet. No. That's so on maybe the to-do maybe list. I'll sell it. Maybe I'll will. Put in a fireplace, haven't decided. We'll see how we go. Let me know. What should I do? Put in a fireplace or sell it? I've got to find a place to put, a spot to put a fireplace. I'm sure you'll work something out. I think we can. If someone's got a fireplace to, for sale, give me a call. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I reckon you, yeah. Not sure I'm allowed to say that on Faith FM, but I, I just did anyway. You're listening to the Breakfast Joe podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, what's happening in the world of positively different news in today? Positively different news. Uh, there's a lot of people in this world that, that don't have fathers. They don't have father figures. Whether that's because they're, they're you know they've died or they've left or they're out of the picture. Countless different reasons. There's this one guy in America who has decided, who's taken it upon himself to teach kids some of the lessons that dads usually teach their children. For okay. example, changing a tire. Or yep. teaching them to shave, mm-hmm. unclogging a pipe, and things like this. This guy is called. He's got a YouTube channel, and he called it "Dad, How Do I?" Cool. And the That's reason, a great initiative. And the reason why that he he sort of came up with this initiative is because he was one of these kids. His dad, uh, you know, he he lost his dad when he was twelve, and um, since then he he's he's learned how to do all this stuff on his own. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's been some father figures in his life, but for the most part, he's had to do this on his own. And now that he's got his own kids, he's realizing how much easier it is for them having a father figure, having their father in their lives. And he's making this opportunity for other adults that haven't had that father figure to you know, learn the things that they didn't learn from their dad. That's cool. It is. And yeah, it, as, as you said, it's a really, really cool and great initiative. And um, yeah. So what kind of things have you learnt from your dad uh, that have given you good life skills in the last couple of years? I, I learnt how to drive from my dad. Yep. Uh, yeah, look, I love mum, but she, I didn't learn that from her. <laughs> um, what else? Dad taught me, dad taught me how, how to both 
act responsibly and irresponsibly around a fire. Uh, yes, that's 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 a total dad skill so right there. One, one thing that that dads often also have the, the the great thing of doing is telling kids what to do and also demonstrating what not not to do. <laughs> and some things my my dad has certainly done that. Uh, in the car, he, he taught me what not to do, and I haven't done those. Right. Um, you know, he, he likes to, to leave leave his signature some places that he shouldn't. Um, using the wrong equipment, but hey, he as get- in the right foot, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have that kind of a car, Liam. No, I don't. Oh, look, Dad's always told me that he could always he's, he's looked at the car and said, "Look, it, it'd be a bit difficult, but he could get there." Um, <laughs> he's, he's, he's a magician. I want to meet your dad. I, I, I'm just sort of, um, I'm just sort of suddenly warming to your dad. He, he, um, he's one of the best drivers I know. Mm-hmm. But he is he he can also be one of the worst drivers. Like when I've driven with him. So what's your dad's uh, favorite set of wheels? Favorite set of wheels? Well, okay, he's got a bunch of set of wheels. Oh, at the moment it's a four wheel drive. He's got a four wheel drive at the moment. Yes. Um, uh, Nissan. Oh, uh, Pathfinder. Nissan Pathfinder. Okay. That's what he's got at the moment. And um, I was hoping you were going to say Patrol, but no. We'll we'll we'll, we'll let him off the hook with the Pathfinder. The Pathfinder has more seats in it. Yeah, yeah. Well, and at least it has low range. Yeah, and uh, I forgive him for that. But so that's what he's got at the moment, um, and he's, he's done it all up to look real fancy. Um, the other family car we've got is a Toyota Hiace, which is a big people mover, a bus. Okay, and um, you're not going to leave much of a signature with one of those. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> this is not your ordinary high ace. I'm getting this look from the other oh, side. Oh, no. <laughs> Believe me, it is your ordinary high ace. It is your ordinary high ace. He's just a very talented guy. Um, so, yeah, there are a couple of the life skills that my dad has, has, has both taught me and made me steer clear of, if you will. Um, so, yeah, this guy, it's yeah, a wonderful initiative. It's, it's always good to have father figures in your life to it is. teach you these skills. Absolutely. In other news, there is a church in Germany. So Germany has they've been slowly increasing the or, or re- lift they've been slowly lifting the coronavirus restrictions, uh, which includes the amount of people that can be gathered in a church, which I think is about fifty at the moment. Oh, nice. Um, so there is one mosque that has a, uh, an attendance, a membership of one thousand. Now, obviously, you can't fit 1,000 no. into 50. 50, 1,000 is a big difference. It is. So, there is a church down the uh, about one, one and a half kilometres down the road from this mosque that, uh, that have opened up their doors to the mosque. The, the Martha Evangelical Church... They they offered to open its doors to host a Friday prayers. Yep. And I think they've they've got two they're running two programs, two services, so that the people from this mosque can come and still worship. So I thought it was like amazing. I think it's a great idea because I mean this church would be normally be worshiping on Sunday and the Muslims would like to be there on Friday and so get as much use out of that building as what you can. Why have it Absolutely. sitting there doing nothing during the week, you know? Let people have uh, opportunity to create a community and to create, you know, strong social ties that keep society together. Exactly. So this has been, you know, raising money for both the mosque and the new and the the Martha Evangelical Church, raising more money for both churches because more people are attending. And it's keeping the the mosque, the the members members of the mosque, it's keeping them Going to church, still being able to being able to go and worship, 
Um, and yeah, they're just it's. I think more and more, it's it's great to see that different beliefs and different faiths are coming together to just. Although, as I've said, there's distinctly distinctly different and separate doctrines and teachings, and we need to recognise that and not blur those lines. That's it. But we need to recognise that we are people of faith, and as people of faith, we can have a movement of faith, and hopefully, that is a movement of faith towards Jesus Christ. Um, you know, and whatever we can have that kind of movement happening, I think it's a positive thing. That's it. Absolutely. Well, my last story. It's a it's a it's a very cute story about a dog. Uh, it's it it could have ended devastatingly though. This little toy poodle named Angus went missing in Queensland for six nights, and it was feared dead. Like poodles, they're not toy poodles, especially they're not big dogs. No. They How long was it missing for? Six days. Okay, that's not first in. We had a story last week about a dog that was missing for you know, a couple months of months. Oh, a couple of months, yeah. That was a big dog. This is a tiny dog. Yeah, you know, poodles, poodles aren't necessarily seen as hunting foraging no, dogs. No, um, So, yeah, this, this teeny tiny dog, it went missing for six nights in the scrub and it was feared dead. And just recently, it was found and and re relocated and and joined reunited with its owners. See, here's the here's the interesting thing about poodles. Sorry, I'm butting in here, but the interesting thing about poodles is that they have dog DNA in them, even though you might not think that they do. The DNA is there. It might be latent, but it actually exists. That's it. And if you work with a poodle, you can draw that DNA out, and suddenly they turn back into being a dog. They'll get there. That's pretty eventually. cool. I know this because my dad has a well, my. My stepmother has a has a poodle, which my dad has turned into a dog. Good on him. He's always had, you know, like hunting dogs and so forth, and now he has a poodle to take hunting. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Now, this morning we are joined by uh, Daniel Matteo, who is the youth director for the Adventist Church in Tasmania. Uh, good morning, Daniel. How, how are you? Good, thanks, mate. Good to be here. That's good. Um, now, this morning we are going to be talking about another a pretty heavy topic, which is porn and the effects of porn that it can have on people and and the world, and especially over the recent times. So, um, can you just what is uh, to begin with? What is what is your sort of journey been with porn over over your life? Mm. Yeah, no, thanks for asking, mate. Um, so. First of all, you know, it's, it's, it, you're right. It is a heavy topic, and uh, for me, you know, I'm um, I'm happy to admit that uh, that I'm a recovered pornography addict. And uh, when I say that, um, some people kind of look at me sideways and go, "How can you get addicted to something that isn't, you know, an actual substance?" And uh, in actual fact, um, you you can develop addictions to things that aren't substances. People get addicted to all sorts of things that give them a high or a buzz, but in particular. Um, as it pertains to any kind of sexual experience, um, it can it's addictive because of the the substances that your brain releases when you have those those experiences. So, you know, there's all sorts of chemicals in your brain that God's created to to bond, um, or that are re- released in your brain when that God's created to bond a husband and a wife together. And um, and sometimes it's possible when we have experiences that are outside of God's will uh, for us that we can develop addictions and dependencies on um, I guess on that and uh, and yeah it's sort of very very similar to some sort of drug that you'd actually put into your body so um, yeah have you got any like did you want to ask me anything about that before I kind of tell you I guess a bit about my journey with it or? um no uh, 
just we're, we're more than happy to just uh, hear your journey. Yeah, yeah. No, cool. Well, yeah, so when I was 13 years old, um, I was uh, playing with a robot toy that my mother had given to me uh, with a mate that uh, that uh, lived next door. And he said to me, man, I really want that toy, you know. And, um, and he said, I'm willing to swap you something that I got from a friend at school. And I was like, okay, fair enough. What is that? And uh, and he pulled out these magazines that had a whole bunch of pictures in them of women that weren't wearing any clothes. And uh, I was like, didn't really know what it was. It was like a little bit shocking to me, but also <laughs> it was also you know <clears throat> intriguing. I was I was interested, you know, as a young as a young kid, you know, and in, in as a developing kid in these things. So I swapped this for a toy. It's the first time I was ever exposed to it, and it just really changed the way that I thought changed the way that I thought about women it also um <clears throat> I guess it changed and transformed the way that um, my mind dealt with um with hard hard times or stress because every time every time I went through any sort of difficulty or stress um in high school I'd sort of go back to these magazines and this is before the internet was like a massive thing like it was around but not many people had it you know so um it was sort of more printed kind of material but particularly when I joined the army um, I found that porn was everywhere, but um, <clears throat> when they uh, sent me on operations, I, uh, I went through a bit of a traumatic sort of experience where I was, you well, not only was I kind of constantly, you know, a little bit afraid about the external situation, I was experiencing some um, some targeted, well, what you might call workplace bullying, what we call in the army bastardization from, a, from an immediate superior and sort of this idea of never feeling safe. You know, he made kind of death threats a couple of times and, and uh, this idea of never feeling safe kind of led me to really internalise my pain, and I felt like I focused it all. Instead of turning it to God, I sort of focused on on, a, on a, what I felt was an escape, and that's when my addiction was really solidified. So it got to the point where if pornography said jump, I jumped. That was it. You know, once I got that feeling when my blood was running and my mouth was watering, um, I just uh, I just couldn't say no. So it just controlled my whole life. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so that went on um, until uh, right up until I was. Um, well, funnily enough, I, I kind of had turned my back on God after that period, but I started coming back to church. Um, and uh, what I found was even, I guess, when I gave my life to God, I, I didn't sort of have victory in this particular area of my life. It was a real struggle. And uh, I ran into the woman that I wanted to marry, and uh, and God sort of spoke to me and said. You know, you're really going to let this woman marry you without telling her what you really are. And uh, and so, at that point, you know, we had an internet connection and everything. And uh, and I, with a lot of shame, uh, told her that you know I had this problem, and I couldn't seem to get past it. And uh, yeah, she insisted on looking at my browser history, which was yeah, pretty much the most shameful moment of my whole life. Um, I'm not really sure why she chose to sort of go through with a wedding after that, but um, yeah, she did. And uh, I, I sort of started a bit of a battle in myself. Um, I read a book uh, by uh, by an Adventist pastor named Bernie Anderson called Breaking the Silence. And in that book, I, for the first time ever, I got the sense that maybe it was possible to overcome this thing. I'd, I'd somewhat got comfortable with the idea of the ups and the downs, you know, like you go okay for a while and then you fall. And I sort of thought that that was just the way that it had to be basically for always but um this guy was talking in this book about how it's really 
that God's able to give you power to overcome. And that was actually really scary to me. Um, it was scary because when you use when you use an addiction or an escape to deal with your pain or with um, any kind of stressor that happens in your life, when you think about a time in the future where you're never ever going to have that again, that you're never going to have that crutch to fall back on, it's uh, it's really scary. And I could, I guess, cope with the idea of going for a little while without it, but my whole life in total victory was was um, something that, if I was honest with myself, I didn't really want. So, uh, so I had to start praying this prayer: "Don't, um, Lord, I don't want to win, but I want to want to win. So I need you to change me, so that I want to want to win, and um, and and." You know, if you'll do that, then I'll be yours. And so going through these this kind of time when my wife became my accountability partner and God became my power and my strength. What's funny is when you make a decision that you're really going to beat this thing is that the enemy throws everything that he can at you. And um, at that time, I was, I'd was i got out of the army and I was in the security industry and I was working at a tradies office um, um, on a Sunday. I'd be doing, I'd do 12 hours of overtime. And this tradies office, um, you know, just like, just being there so it didn't get broken into they didn't flog their tools or whatever and uh, this tradies office actually backed onto a um onto a news agency uh, skip, uh sort of business there and they had their skip bins the news agency would get all this porn and if they didn't sell it they threw it into the skip and the tradies would go out and grab it so this office was just full of porn so i'd i'd be stuck in this office for 12 hours you know i needed the money i wanted to do the overtime but i'd just be stuck there on my own no one around stacks of porn everywhere and that was that was where the real battle was that went on for about 12 months my wife would drop me off in the morning and we'd pray together and i'd go the first thing i would do is go around and cover up everything with newspapers so that i couldn't see anything and i'd just sit there and study my bible for 12 hours and pray and beg god for power and um at the end of it my wife would pick me up and she'd say how did we go today you know and uh sometimes I was I was happy to see her, and sometimes I was ashamed. Um, but uh, I found after after about twelve months, I I kind of realised that my victories were getting more frequent, and my losses were getting less frequent. And after a while, I was like, man, it's been three months, and then it's been twelve months, and then and now I look back, and it's been thirteen years. You know, so it's just amazing how God can step in with his power, you know, not of yourself, but with his power and give you one victory at a time, one step at a time, one day at a time uh, until you walk with him into the kingdom. So, yeah, um, that's kind of where I come from. And I always tell people that there's an equation to overcoming any struggle in your life, and that is that divine power plus human support equals spiritual growth, yeah. Mm, Amen. Now, that's that's certainly a a very powerful uh, testimony there. Um, So... That was one way that what the one way that I got from that that you um, sort of overcame your addiction to, to pornography was was through the word and, and through the support of other people and the, the, the turning to God. How important is the the support from other people and and turning to God? How important are those factors in uh, anyone's trying and trying to overcome an addiction? Yeah, it's super important. <clears throat> um, one of the things that yeah, that I think is a really important step towards overcoming really anything. And, you know, 
it's it's very true, particularly in these times of um, I guess social isolation, that we it's natural for us to turn because of boredom. You know, we've got less things to entertain our time that we're going to be turning more and more to addictions, perhaps that aren't substance based. You know, that are kind of like entertainment or. Um, you know, in this case, pornography based. So, um, but to admit that you've got a problem, to actually take responsibility and say, you know, this is actually a problem for me is a lot of times half the battle. You know, one of the big, I guess, um, one of the big struggles or obstacles about addiction is that it deceives you into thinking that you're fine. Like you think that you've got it, you know, you think it's not a problem. Um, and to actually admit, you know what, this is negatively affecting my relationships. It's neg- negatively affecting my mind. It's ne- negatively affecting my pocket. I'm, 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 my life is going backwards because of this thing in so many different ways. And to actually accept that reality and say, I have a problem, I need help. And to admit that to another person um, is really, really important and massive. You asked about human support, like to have an accountability partner, you know, somebody that's willing to be honest and ask you tough questions, you know, um, is, is super important because it gives you a consequence, you know, to your actions, which you don't necessarily have, um, or it, let's say, isn't immediately obvious to you at other times. Yeah. Yeah, just a quick question there, uh, Daniel, not sure whether, uh, okay, if you, hopefully you can hear me all right on, on this system, but the question that I've got in my mind is, as, as Christians, we understand that pornography is wrong. Jesus said, you know, you should not lust. Um, however, from, from a secular perspective, most people see pornography as being something that is entirely natural and normal. And so how would you answer a secular person who says, well, what is actually wrong with porn? What is damaging about porn? Why would I want to give this up? Well, you know, in, in actual fact that what you just said, there used to be the common belief, but just from pure, pure experiential life has caused um, there to be a massive movement against pornography and and in the secular world um and the reason is that people have just experienced that this destroys your life this destroys your marriage this destroys your your view of women it destroys well you know and in case of women your view of relationships um it destroys your self-image um there's so many different things and so in actual fact um there's all sorts of secular movements that have nothing to do with god whatsoever that just um that are trying to help people and support people towards freedom from this and so let me let me put it this way um i believe that um that uh as men you know um biologically we have a little bit more testosterone than women and as a result there's a protective i believe there's a protective role to being a man you know Our, our job ought to be to protect and to respect women to whatever greater or lesser extent and i um and you can't no honest person can come to the content of pornography and say that this uplifts and this ennobles women. No honest person can can come to the content of pornography and say this is something that empowers and this is somewhat something something that lifts women up to a level of equality and, and strength, you know. And so there's that level, right? The social justice level, um, not to mention that you know the level of victimhood that takes place um, against the the actors and you don't have to do very much research to find out the the connection between pornography and human trafficking right but you know just in terms of your the personal impact on an individual you know the the destruction of their relationships you know the um for men you know that it leads to impotence often you know where sort of because a human relationship can't measure up to um i guess the um the chemical thrill of uh, of what 
of the false uh, the false narratives that pornography pay, paints. What else? I could, look, mate, I could sit here all day and tell you all of the negative impacts. Just the financial, a hundred billion dollars US per year is the is the profit of the pornography industry worldwide, um, which, by the way, is the number that the UN has put on. Um, how how much it would cost to make sure there was no hungry children in the world, you know. So that's just the profit of the pornography industry. Um, we could end world hunger um, if we stopped doing that. Like, yeah, I mean, is that enough for you? Or yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. Um, now, one one question that I've got that I got, I'll be honest, it, it, I think I'm I'm guilty of this too, but. Pornography doesn't just come in the form of, of what is stereotypically pornography. There are many other different platforms of what could be classed as pornography, such as, you know, in movies, there are some movies that where, where nudity is seen and, and where there's sexual content. So what are some, what are some, uh, some telling signs that, that could tell someone that they could be addicted to uh, pornography when they might not realize it? Mm. Yeah, right. Well, how how does somebody know they're addicted if they if they don't if they can't realize it? That's the question. Well, yeah, right? that's that's true. Uh, or yeah. I guess maybe to put it differently, what what are some different what are some platforms of pornography that people may not realize? Mm. Okay, I see what you're saying. Right. Okay, well, I mean, in um, the the word pornea, you know, in um, in Greek simply means immorality, and so the the word graphos um, in Greek it means writing, or I guess if you put it in in our modern context, any kind of media or um, or communication. So just put those two ideas together. And so if you've got immorality in communication, it's going to have the um, – or in media, it's going to have the, the effect of being stimulating um, sexually and have that have that effect on your brain um, and be potentially addictive. So I'm thinking about books, you know, like there's um, – there's romance no- novels and things that are particularly targeted at women. And I use the word romance very, very loosely because women, women tend to be more um, thought and imagination based and, uh, and men tend to be more sight and visually based. And that's or not always the case, but, you know, generally speaking. So there are these kind of like erotic stories that they call romance novels that are particularly targeted at women. And, um, and, you know, these are really pornography. You know, if, if you spend more than 15 minutes reading them, it's not stories of people going on dates and love stories. It's stories about sex. Very, very explicit. And, um, you know, there's the, the really, really horrid series, the Fifty Shades series that came out a few years ago, you know, that was, um, yeah, that, that took that to a really, really obscene level. So um, there's, there's that sort of thing. You know, you, obviously there's sex scenes in films. You know, sometimes a film would be rated, you know, M or, or whatever, and you're sort of not expecting that it's going to be too bad. But, I mean, what you're seeing is the first level of something that's going to draw you into a more explicit addiction. Um, even, even like... A lot of sort of kids' cartoons or whatever have got themes in them. Often, they increasingly these days that are um, sort of sexual themes and um, and uh, yeah, so kids and kids shows, you know, um, often uh, depict uh, sort of. I mean, people engaging in behaviour that is above, you know, what we'd want kids that age to engage in, you know. So, yeah. Yeah, no, look, Daniel, thank you so much for talking to, to us this morning. Uh, we've got some very powerful, powerful t- testimony from you there and some very powerful messages as well. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and, yeah, we really appreciate it. Yeah, that's all good, man. And uh, so if, um, if I can sort of leave our, your listeners with anything, it's just this, that divine power plus human support equals growth. You know, you need both of those together. You can't have just one or the other. You need 
you know, that real connection to a living God that steps down and gives you power to overcome. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so let's go to our question of the day. Question and of we the have day. The question that, uh, we've got some interesting questions coming in on the end, and you can send your questions. Um, some interesting questions coming in. In fact, I've got a question coming on the text message right now. At this very second, I've got one coming in. Um, I think I will deal with that one tomorrow. We'll run with the one that we've got right in front of us, and this one has come in on the end, um, on the end.digital on YouTube. And it says, Do you think the Ten Commandments are a law of heaven, and therefore that is why they are also a law of earth? It's a really good question. It is indeed. Are the Ten Commandments valid in heaven? So let's think about that for a moment before we give our biblical answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the summary of the Ten Commandments. Does that apply equally in all parts of the universe? Yes. Okay. Um, Let's think about this then. Um, You shall have no other gods before me. Is that going to apply equally in all parts of the universe? I'd imagine so, yes. Yes. Uh, thou shalt not kill. Is that going to apply equally in all parts of the universe? Yes. Indeed it is. Thou shalt not lie. Yes. Absolutely. So when we go down through the Ten Commandments, they are always going to be applied. Um, they're always going to be relevant at all times in all parts of the universe. The one that thou shalt have no other gods before me, in heaven, to me, it almost does seem a little bit pointless because there will be no other gods before other than God. Um, but I guess in the sense where someone, that there was a time way back when where there was one pers- one angel that was high up that exactly. thought he was God. So well, decided he was going to be like God. He's like, I will be like the Most High. I will overtake the government of God. And God's saying, no, you can't do that. So I guess in that, in that point, it's, it's still relevant everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Most definitely, because anybody really has the opportunity, if they use their freedom of choice, their God-given freedom of choice, to proclaim themselves as God. That does not make you God, but that does mean that you proclaim yourself as God and then others have the, have the choice, because God has given us freedom of choice, to choose whether or not they worship that person and God is saying, you only get to worship one person, that's me, that's it, that's nobody else. Uh, there is only one God. Okay, so let's uh, work our way through this. First John chapter 3 and verse 4, the Bible says, Whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So this is the first thing that we find is that Lucifer sinned in heaven before this world came into existence. You can find that in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 through 14. So we know that Lucifer sinned before this world was created. Sin is impossible without a law. If you go to some places in the world, there is no such thing as a speed limit, and you can drive as fast as you want. You cannot be fined when there is no law. There's a place in the Northern Territory where you can do that. There's a place in the Northern Territory where you can do that. If you hit Skippy at that you know, ridiculous speed, 300 kilometers an hour or whatever you are doing, you might not be so might not be a smart thing to do, but you can legally do that. Okay, so where there is no law, there is no sin. The Bible says that. Um, in Romans chapter 4 and verse 15, the Bible says, For where no law is, there is no transgression. That is stating the obvious. And if sin is the transgression of the law, then the law obviously is the means by which God defines what sin is. 
So then we have to simply find out which law is it that defines what sin is. And in Romans chapter 7 and verse 7, the Bible says, I had not known sin, but by the law, in other words, except that the law told me what sin was, because I would not have known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. So the law that defines what sin is, is the Ten Commandments. There is no sin without law. It would be impossible for Satan to sin if there was no law. I'm going to go as far as this. It's impossible to have freedom of choice unless there is a law. That's right. And freedom of choice is what creates love. Indeed. And so that law has been there from eternity and it will be there for eternity. It is a transcript of the character of God. You can't change it. You can't do away with it. It is a part of heaven itself. And this is one of the things that really worries me is that this is the only part of the Bible that was personally, physically written by God and yet people really don't place the emphasis on it that they should. It's like, yeah, there's this kind of thing about the Ten Commandments. It's kind of vaguely got some good things in it, whereas this is actually central to the entire conflict between Christ and Satan. It's at the very, very center of it. Okay, another good verse if you want to look at it is very quickly, Ezekiel 28, verse 14 and 15, uh, showing that Lucifer was perfect before he chose to sin and break God's law. 